0: Hello and welcome to the 50th edition of Geeking with Destination Venus. Can you believe this is 50, 50 episodes? Which means, given that we've skipped a couple of weeks, it's about a year since we ended the geek, the Geeking with Destination, we didn't end the Geeking oh for goodness sake. Do you know what, I'm going to leave that in. Normally when I misspeak like that, I actually cut it and, um, you know, make at least some attempt to sound like a professional. But... Honestly, it's been a year, folks. I think you have every right to hear the rambling mess that this show actually is. So it's been a year since we ditched the original Geeks at the Gate title uh, and kind of accepted that the old Geeks at the Gate format just wasn't going to be possible, at least for a while, and went with this. I would like to thank you all for sticking around. I really would. Um, So thank you. But before we go any further, I do have to get all sombre on you again, because I don't know whether it's just my age, but I seem to be experiencing a period of people that I respect passing away. Last week it was Neil Adams, this week it is George Perez. If you've been following the show for a while, you will remember that I talked about George Perez and his pancreatic cancer diagnosis way back in episode 30 of this very show when he was diagnosed Perez made the difficult decision to go for quality of life rather than quantity of life he didn't want to be medicated and be feeling sick from the chemo and so he he didn't take chemo and just let the cancer run its course and I think that's an incredibly brave decision. I'm not sure it's one that I would have made. I think I would cling. By all accounts, that was typical of the man. He knew what he wanted. Uh, He wanted to be there for his family. And he didn't want his family to see him suffer. And he wanted to enjoy life as much as he possibly could for as long as he possibly could. But he had... I, I guess you'd call it the grace to recognise that eventually, time's up. And he accepted that with, as far as I can see, incredible, incredible courage. As is often the case when I do these obits, you only have to look at the outpouring of love and admiration for the man. From everywhere. George Perez was a giant of comics. I said this about Neil Adams last week. I'm saying it again about George Perez. Some of the most iconic comic art of the last 40 years came from his pen. I think perhaps the most iconic Perez cover, certainly, was uh, the DC's Crisis on Infinite Earths storyline. Um, one of the covers that Perez drew for that uh, was after the death of Supergirl. It was Superman carrying the body of Supergirl in his arms and just screaming at the heavens in anguish. And there was so much emotion in that. It really is, I I think, one of the best comic covers of all time. And I don't even like Superman. So, you know, it, it was the talent of the man, the empathy of the man, the ability that that he had to convey emotion and to make the reader believe in it was incredible. And you can't do that, I don't think, if you don't have that empathy and depth of emotion within you. So I'm not going to do a rundown of Perez's life and career. So many other people have done that much, much better than I ever could. I never met George Perez, something that I regret. Uh, I never had the opportunity to meet George Perez, but I could have made the opportunity. I could have gone to New York Comic Con. I could have done all kinds of things. I wish I had. There's an awful lot of George Perez art in my comic collection. And I'm going to be digging some of that out over the next few weeks and just reveling in it and remembering the life and the talent of a truly, truly great artist. To lose two such great artists within a couple of weeks of each other is a bit much, actually. Frankly, universe, if you're listening. Uh, if we could have no more of this for a bit, I would appreciate it. Obviously, obviously, um, our sincerest condolences go out to the people who did Knows George Perez to his family, to his friends, to the people who worked with him, all of whom appear to have loved him. And you know, I I know what it's like to lose somebody to cancer after a longish time. It's 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 difficult to watch somebody that you care about go through that when you know that there's only one end. So. I am sorry that George Perez's family and friends had to go through that. I'm sorry that George Perez had to go through that. Um, and as I say, that our most heartfelt condolences go out to them. You should go and check out some of George Perez's work if you're not familiar with it. Just Google George Perez art. You'll find loads. I'll, I'll stick some stuff in the show notes, but honestly, um, you go and go and check it out. And seek out what other people have had to say about him, because honestly, I hope that at some point in the far, far, far future, people say things that are half as nice about me. So moving on. Ah, Right. That was not what I wanted for our 50th opening, but George Perez had to come at the top of the show. He had to. Far, far, far too important, too great a man, to have was obituary at the end when you'd have to listen to my waffling for an, for an hour. But life moves on, things move on, and there is stuff we have to talk about, and I think the first thing we have to talk about is the fact that finally, finally, we know who the new Doctor Who's going to be. And I am, as you can probably hear, a little bit excited. because. It's the new Doctor. And I'm always excited about the new Doctor. I'm not as excited as I was last time. And that, I guess, might be down to the fact that there's been much less fanfare this time. I mean, when Jodie Whittaker was revealed as the new Doctor, it was as part of a, a, a whole thing in, in in the middle of Wimbledon. And, you know, it, it, it was... You know really really beefed up this less so and um, there's all kinds of reasons for that i don't think it's because the bbc cares less it's just everything's a bit in limbo now i mean they there is one more episode of doctor who featuring jd whitaker as the doctor still to come but they finished filming and production on it ages ago i mean months and months ago so there's nobody currently working on Doctor Who. The old guard, Chris Chibnall and Jodie Whittaker, Mandip Gill, uh, they've all moved on. I mean, Jodie Whitt- Whittaker is now heavily pregnant, um, so she's not really up for going out and doing promotion. And anyway, this isn't anything to do with her. Mandip Gill has clearly left Doctor Who and, you know, there's no reason why she would do promotion stuff. And so who's the, 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 the new team, hasn't really started yet so there's no one to make a fuss about it also of course this is where the BBC has stepped off Doctor Who a little bit it's no longer being produced in-house by the BBC it's now going to be made by Bad Wolf Productions still in Cardiff but it's Russell T Davis's show and he hasn't really kicked off I imagine that as production starts and you know, things start getting get going. They're going to have to get on with it if we're going to get Doctor Who next year. I imagine we'll see a bit more. Uh, but I actually haven't told you who it is yet. I mean, I'm assuming you know. But um, they've cast Shuti Gatwa as the new Doctor. Uh, this makes him the third Scotsman of the modern era to play the Doctor, which means that out of how many have we had in the new era now, uh, eight, nine, no, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. So he's the sixth doctor of the new era, uh, and he's the third Scotsman. So clearly there is a huge preponderance of, of Scottishness in the TARDIS, which is cool. Like that. Now, I am unfamiliar with this guy's work. Uh, apparently he's best known. For being in the Netflix show Sex Education, which, as I understand it, is very, very good, but I've never watched it. It's been on my list of things to watch since it started because it's got Gillian Anderson in it, but I haven't actually got around to watching it yet. So I can't tell you whether there's any good in sex education, but everybody tells me that he was amazing. And he was, in fact, awarded Best Actor at the Scottish BAFTAs in 2020 and has had many other. BAFTA nominations. So I presume he's quite good. So that's that's cool. Uh, He is the first person of colour to play the Doctor. So we've gone straight from the first woman to the first person of colour. Excellent. Nice to see a bit of diversity. Nice to have diversity in the main character. Uh, I mean, even the companions haven't been that diverse until very recently, but uh, now we've got some diversity in the central character as well. That's good. Representation is important. So happy about that. Um, more than that, I cannot say. I've got no idea what to expect from this, and I like that. I like the idea that I don't know what's coming. Uh, Charlotte Moore, who is the chief content officer at the BBC, says, and uh, shooty has an incredible dynamism. OK, I like that. Apparently, he's a striking and fearless young actor whose talented and energy will set the world alight and take Doctor Who on an extraordinary adventures under Russell T. Davis's new era. Yet. Yeah. You're quite right. She did say that in a press release. That was worded exactly as you express expect a, a press release to be. And um, mm, that's the BBC for you. Fan reaction has been largely positive from what I've seen, although I do tend to steer clear of large sections of Who fandom these days because it's been incredibly toxic over the last few years. And, you know... There's been a couple of comments I've seen about "Mm, BBC's being politically correct again, which annoy the heck out of me for reasons I'm fairly sure I've probably explained previously. Uh, Is the BBC being politically correct by casting an actor of colour? I don't think so. I don't think that there's any reason to think that the BBC have specifically gone out and looked for a black doctor. I think They've gone out and looked for a good actor because that's what they've always done. Yeah, I mean, I've got my issues with some of the Doctors from the past. I'm not a fan of The Sixth Doctor, for example. But I certainly wouldn't argue that Colin Baker is a bad actor. He's a great actor. Uh, what well, The problem that I have with The Sixth Doctor is the writing, which was god-awful. Mm-hmm. And certainly, I have friends who are not fans of The Current Doctor, and their objection to, largely, is the writing, which I agree has not served Jodie Whittaker well. We're getting Russell T. Davis back as showrunner, that's, I'm not sure if that's a step I'm a fan of or not. I was a huge fan of Russell T. Davis's original run as showrunner on Doctor Who. He brought the character back, for goodness sake. But Doctor Who's always been about looking forward, bringing back an old showrunner, to me, it feels like bringing back an old doctor. It's an odd thing to do. It feels a little retrograde. What I hope will happen is that he won't remain showrunner for terribly long. What, I, what I'm hoping is that he's grooming some up-and-coming producers who work at Bad Wolf to take over from him. And if that's the case... That'll be great because, you know, Russell T Davies will obviously still have an overview of Doctor Who, but some fresh young blood taking the show in new directions probably is something that needs to happen because Doctor Who is an odd beast in genre television now. There really aren't that many narrative shows that are designed to be seen by the whole family at the same time, on a Saturday night, on a particular evening, even these days the the norm for this kind of thing is for it to be available on streaming at a certain from a certain date, but then just there. And do- the BBC doesn't really do that with Doctor Who, and I worry that that traditional approach, that old fashioned broadcast TV approach. Could work to the show's detriment. Now, don't get me wrong, I like the idea that Doctor Who is appointment television, but the fact that I'm uncomfortable with the change doesn't mean the change isn't happening. TV isn't run the way it used to be run, and people don't consume it the way they used to consume it anymore. The landscape has completely changed. The way Doctor Who is produced has got to change with it. So, Hopefully, Russell T. Davis and Bad Wolf have a team together that can manage that transition, which I think needs to happen. We'll see. Uh, I trust Russell T. Davis with this. I really do. I know how much of a fan of the Doctor he is, and I think he's going to do whatever needs to be done. And in that sense, I think it's perhaps a good thing. The anti-Beeb isn't in charge anymore because God love the BBC. I think it's the second best thing this country ever did. But it is a huge organisation that doesn't move quickly and doesn't change quickly. And I think the media landscape is changing very quickly now. And I'm happy that Doctor Who is just a bit at arm's length from the Beeb. Obviously, I will be following this story with a huge amount of interest. And as more happens, I will be talking about it here a lot because I do love me some Doctor Who. I really do. But it is time to move on. And I have been promising you a review of Moon Knight for some time. So strap in because I've got a lot of opinions and I'm about to go off on one. So hold tight for the spoiler horn. Believe me, they will be. Any number of spoilers from the very beginning. If you haven't seen Moon Knight and you're intending to. Well, first of all, if you haven't seen Moon Knight and you're intending to, what have you been doing? But also, if you haven't seen Moon Knight and you're intending to and you want to be spoiler free, look away now. Spoilers. Spoilers. Okay, you have been warned from now on. There are going to be spoilers for Moon Knight. I've told you you can't get cross with me if I ruin something for you now. So Moon Knight, first of all, you already know that I really, really enjoyed this show. It is an absolute breath of fresh air to have a superhero movie, movie, a superhero show using a new Marvel character. This is the first time Marvel have launched a character on Disney Plus as a show. Without having them appear in a movie first, you could maybe argue that they did that with Kate Bishop and that they did that with Monica Rambeau. But Monica Rambeau had appeared in Captain Marvel, only you know, child Monica Rambeau had. And yes, Hawkeye introduced Kate Bishop, but they were really hanging their hat on Jeremy Renner as Hawkeye. In that he was the you know the big name safety draw. This is. A character that nobody who doesn't read the comics has ever come across before. And I'm pleased that they started to do that with Moon Knight, because I've always had a bit of a soft spot for Moon Knight. He's very much a sea C-lister in the Marvel comics. He's not had that many issues of his own. He was a part of the West Coast Avengers for a while, but... You know, he's never had the draw of a Spider-Man or the X-Men or Wolverine and not even really the draw of an Iron Man who, remember, before 2008, when Robert Downey Jr. played Iron Man in the first film, Iron Man was very much a D-lister and so were the Avengers. So, you know, he's definitely below that tier. And they used the blank slate that they had because the audience was really largely unaware of him very, very well. I mean, I can tell you that in the comics, Moon Knight is very definitely the story of Mark Spector, a man who was a uh, a soldier and then a mercenary, who was killed in the desert, and who was resurrected by the Egyptian god of the moon, Khonshu, who made him his instrument of vengeance. In the comics, it is also the case that Mark Spector has dissociative identity disorder. He has what Konshu consistently refers to as a broken mind. And that's largely because Khonshu is a bit of a git, really. The part of that dissociative identity disorder, Mark Spector has other personalities. Stephen Grant... And what I'm, do you know what? What I'm not going to mention because that's a spoiler for season two, which I'm pretty sure we're going to get, but more about that later. Now, the the clever thing that the show did was they didn't open with Mark Spector. They opened with Stephen Grant. And we see in the first episode, Stephen Grant is having some trouble. By day, he works in a museum. By night, He goes home and has weird dreams. And he also sometimes wakes up in places that he didn't fall asleep in. And he doesn't like that. So he straps himself to his bed. There's sand all around his bed so he can see if he's got up in the night. Uh, He keeps a piece of tape over the door so he can see if it's been opened. None of this works, but... You know, we can see that he's taking precautions and he doesn't know what's happening to him. He doesn't know about his other personalities. And we see him at work in what is clearly intended to appear as the British Museum. It isn't. I would be astonished if the British Museum allowed a show like Moon Knight to film inside the British Museum for all kinds of reasons. Uh, They actually use for the front of the museum. It's actually the National Portrait Gallery in Trafalgar Square. Not quite sure what they're using for the interior. It does look very museum i uh, I'm sure it is an actual museum. It, it looks, it doesn't look like a set, but then I suppose it's not supposed to, is it? Anyway, we see him at work. He works in the gift shop. He knows a lot about Egyptology. He's really studied this. And we see him explaining stuff to uh, a child. And he gets told off for that. And he's going, not a tour guide. I need you in the shop by his horrible, horrible, horrible boss. Oh, so, you know. Stephen Grant, bit of a loser, really. Definitely a geek, though, which I approve of. What I really like is the way we focus completely on Stephen Grant for the first episode. Because Stephen clearly doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know about Moon Knight. And neither does the audience, mostly. I mean, I I do, but I'm a massive comics nerd and most of the audience isn't. And Moon Knight's not appeared anywhere else. So... This strikes me as a really cool way of explaining the situation to the audience. Because the audience is finding stuff out as Stephen Grant is finding stuff out. So, what is going on? Well, Stephen clearly knows that he sleepwalks or something, hence the shackling to the bed, and but he doesn't quite get what. And there's a few things that clearly he's not aware of and he knows he's not aware for instance uh, whilst he's being bullied by his boss in the gift shop a woman who is a tour guide a very attractive tour guide asks him if they're still on for their date and he's clearly got no clue no clue at all how he's managed to score a date with this girl but he plays along but there are a lot of things like this in his life he keeps blacking out and we black out with him The gaps in Stephen Grant's awareness are shared by the audience. So when he blanks out and then wakes up in a completely different country, we don't know how he got there either. And this is where we get our first good look at the the antagonist, Arthur Harrow. Now, we'd seen him at the very beginning, uh, very calmly, very reverently, uh, preparing a glass of water, drinking the water, then smashing the glass and putting the broken glass into his shoes and calmly walking off so we know there is something at least odd about this guy and we see him in this european i think it's supposed to, it looks kind of austrian maybe swiss village where he's clearly like worshiped as some great holy leader Uh, sort of a cult-like figure now this is not explained at any point what is this village where arthur harrow is worshipped as some great savior doing where does it come from where is it how did it get this way why are all the people in this village so in awe of arthur harrow and yeah that we never get an explanation for that and that's and that's annoying actually i There are a very few holes I want to pick in this show, but this is one of them. And it seems to be purely a plot device so that Stephen Grant can see what Arthur Harrow is all about. And so that we can get some more indication that there's something going on with Stephen. So we see that Arthur Harrow walks into the market square in this little village and people flock to him and he asks who's going to be first and a man steps forward and arthur harrow clasps his hands and holds his walking stick um sort of resting on the heels of his palms and the stick swings and some ta- and there's a tattoo on arthur harrow's forearm that also of scales which also kind of swing and they balance and harrow gives this guy a big hug and presents him to the crowd and says, This is the face of a good man and Oh well and good. Yeah, you know, so far. So culty. You know, I can I, I can imagine there probably are cults that behave in this kind of way. And then an old lady steps forward to be checked in this way. And for her the scales do not balance. And she's astonished. And she says, But I've always been a good person. And Harrow very sympathetically sort of puts his hand to her cheek and says, I believe you, it must be something you haven't done yet. And then she just dies. And it's very, very clear that she knew that this was a possible consequence. And she did it anyway, which means she's a true believer. So again, where is this cult? What? Where did it come from? I, I wanted more about that. Stephen Grant, of course, has seen all of this, and he's kind of horrified, as you would be, And Harrow gets the sense that there's somebody in the crowd that isn't a believer. And he finds Stephen Grant in the coolest kind of way. I really liked this. It was a nice touch. Uh, Beautifully played by Oscar Isaacs, actually, as Stephen Grant. He... Motions to everyone in the crowd to kneel, which they all do, but Stephen Grant doesn't know the signal, so he doesn't. So he's still standing there just for a fraction of a second, and um, he kind of goes, "Oh, And um, then kneels. And Harrow knows who he is. Harrow motions Stephen to come forward and asks Stephen to give him the scarab that, that Stephen has found. Now Stephen knows nothing about this thing. Uh, he just found it. He doesn't know where it's come from. He doesn't know its importance. He doesn't know what it is. He doesn't know why Harrow wants it. So he's like, well, "Sure." And he's going to give it, but he hears in his head as he's going to give this thing to Harrow, a voice, a voice that he doesn't know who it is. We know it's Khonshu, but Stephen doesn't know this. And Conshu says that he mustn't give this scarab away. And Stephen tries anyway, and he can't. And there's a—it's a brilliant performance by Isaacs, who is clearly got much better um, mime and clown training than I was aware of, as he keeps trying to hand this thing to Harrow and his hand just keeps getting involuntarily snatched away. It's a very, it's a very comedic scene and yet still one full of tension. Harrow is terrifying um, as played by Ethan Hawke because he never loses his temper. He always remains throughout the show, actually just completely calm. He doesn't demand the scarab. He just says, I strongly advise you give that to me in a very calm, very creepy kind of way. It's very very well done. Then there's a blackout, and when we next come to I say we because we are still sharing awareness with Stephen, loads of people are on the floor, and everyone in the village is looking at him with, with absolute horror. Clearly something violent has occurred. So he runs and there's more of that. He ends up stealing their screen van, and we have what is for me the highlight of episode one. Possibly the highlight of the entire series. It's the best car chase I've ever seen. As Stephen Grant is pursued, driving an ice cream van, pursued by thugs in like trucks behind him to the tune of Wham's Wake Me Up Before You Go Go. It's the most incongruous thing and it works beautifully. It's great. And we keep getting blackouts. Um, you know, one of the th- one of the thugs like gets into the ice cream van with a with a pistol, and then there's a, a little fade out, and when we come to, the guy's dead, and St- Stephen's got the pistol, and he's still driving, and and he throws it away, and we hear this voice again. There's a, did he just throw away the pistol? And it it's very very well done, and so he gets himself home, and he makes some discoveries. And what I like about this is that this is Stephen Grant working stuff out for himself. He notices in his flat that there are scratch marks on the floor from where his table is to a different point. So he pulls the table over and like, well, why would you be doing that? It must be that somebody wanted to stand on the table to reach something. So he stands on the table and he finds a little cubby hole. And in the cubby hole, there is a phone and a bunch of paperwork. That doesn't seem to apply to him. And he looks at the phone and there are a bajillion missed calls, mostly from the same person. I did notice that there's uh, a French name on there, which is just just the one, which is a nice little nod to the comics, Um, sort of Alfred to Moon Knight's Batman for a long time was a character called Frenchie. And, And that obviously is a reference to him. Whether we'll see Frenchie at any point in in a future se- series, I uh, sound of the spoiler horn. So I can tell you we don't see him in this one. I don't know. I don't even know if there's going to be a second series of Moon Knight, although I'm betting there will. So we end episode one with Stephen Grant in a state of some confusion and distress. He has seen himself in mirrors talking to him, which means it isn't quite him. It's a different him. Now, we know who that is. It's Mark. But he doesn't know that. Throughout the whole of the first episode, apart from in the like the credit sequence, we haven't seen Moon Knight. We haven't seen the suit. We haven't seen any superhero action. It's been implied, but we haven't seen it. It's only at the very end of the episode one where Stephen goes back to the museum for like an evening function and finds himself pursued. So he runs into, uh, he runs away, as you would, finds himself in uh, in the gents. Where well, there are lots of mirrors. And he's, be- he's being pursued by some kind of creature, a jackaly kind of thing. And he sees in the mirror Mark Spector, clearly Mark Spector, much- a much more confident looking person than Stephen is. And I really liked Oscar Isaac's performance here. We can tell who- which character he's being from his- the way he holds his face, the way he holds his, his-, his stance. Very well done. And Mark is saying, let me go, let me out so I can save us. I can save us, let me out so I can save us. And it's in the last, like, ten seconds. We see the Moon Knight suit sort of wrap itself around Stephen, like mummy bandages almost. And the eyes glow. And then there's just just the sounds of carnage. And we briefly see... Uh, Moon Knight in the cape, in the full costume, just beating the stuffing out of one of these jackal monster demony things. And then that's it. So, it's brilliant. And The reason I've gone, I'm not going to go into so much depth about every single episode, I will be here all night. But the reason I've gone into so much depth about the opening episode is, that's a really brave way to start a story about a character nobody knows. To not let us see him? Brilliant. I was left with so many questions, and I know the character. Now, I I did read some commentary on the internet about people who were irritated by the start of Moon Knight because they didn't know what was going on. I suggest that those people are missing the point. i you know, you do you guys, but that was kind of the point. We shared Stephen's confusion, which I think was kind of kind of good. It was so anyway. As is so often the case with Disney shows, um, Marvel shows in particular. The second episode is less revolutionary. It's a much more standard format. Stephen finds a kind of storage locker where Mark Spector's mercenary stuff is kept. And, you know, the bags full of weapons and fake documents and all that kind of stuff. And he's appalled and shocked and horrified by it. And he he clearly concludes That Mark Spector is a personality that does not need to be let out into into the world, and he tells Mark as much. Leaving the storage facility, he finally meets the woman who's been making all the calls, Layla, who wonders where the hell he's been and why he wants a divorce, because Layla is his wife. Except Stephen isn't married, so he's confused again. Clearly, she's Mark's wife, and she doesn't know about the existence of Stephen. But when they get into trouble, um with you know being attacked by supernatural forces she tells him to release the suit and he doesn't know what she's talking about most of the ending of episode one we have some idea this is an episode also where we find out more about harrow's organization although still not enough okay we know he's an avatar of the goddess Amit. we know he has a cult of true believers and and the difference between amet and khonshu seems to be that Khonshu wants to punish the guilty once they've done something wrong. And Amet wants to wipe out people who will do things wrong before they do them. Which I'm just going to point out is essentially the same argument that Tony Stark and Carol Danvers as Iron Man and Captain Marvel are having in the Marvel Comics series Civil War 2. And if you're not familiar with uh, a slightly overrated Marvel Comics event from 2016, basically what happened there was... Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers, found that there was somebody who could tell the future for for reasons. I'm not going to go into why. And she felt that he would be tremendously useful as an early warning system so that he could tell them when there was going to be a big threat. They could go and deal with the threat before it happened. And Tony Stark said, we can't do that. We can't go around punching people and locking people up before they've done something wrong. That's just not right. And Carol says, but we know they're going to do it. And Stephen says, no, we don't. And so we can't and we mustn't and it would be wicked and wrong. For what it's worth, I'm with Team Tony on that. And that's basically the argument that conshu and Amit are having. So way to recycle ideas, Marvel. Good job. Here, we don't just learn more about Harrow's group. We also learn more about Layla because Layla clearly can handle herself in a fight. Stephen really can't. And Layla is frustrated because she doesn't know about Stephen and she thinks it's Mark mucking about, basically. So she's infuriated by that and she keeps telling him to summon the suit. So in a response to to basically falling out of a window, Stephen does just that. But of course, Stephen doesn't know what the suit is. So what Stephen ends up in is a very nice white dinner suit with a kind of mask, a white sort of masky thing. Because that's what he thinks of when somebody tells him that he needs a suit. And Mark is speaking to him through mirrors again and is, you know, like, what the heck are we wearing? It's a nice bit of banter between the two. Eventually, the threat is, the immediate threat is sorted. Um, we see Conchu a bit. But what is really beginning to happen is the more that Steven sees of Mark Spector's world, the more convinced that he is. That Mark Spector must never be released, which is a bit of a problem because without Mark Spector, there is no Moon Knight and we kind of need him. So we move on to episode three, which is an odd little episode. It's, it's like a, quite a big interaction between Mark stroke, Stephen and Harrow uh, in Cairo. And there's also a kind of creepy meeting of the gods, the Egyptian gods, or at least their avatars. Or at least, the avatars of the gods that are left, because a lot of the gods seem to have been imprisoned. Anyway, it all becomes clear that what Harrow and his group are doing is looking for the tomb of the goddess Amit, so that they can free her and have her take control on Earth, so that people will just be wiped out before they do bad things. Which, actually, when you think about it, isn't all that encouraging for the survival of the human race. But hey, it's also a weird scene... Where there appears to be Egyptian jousting, which I, which I didn't follow, but apparently that was important. Yes, I'm skipping over a lot because a lot happened, but as far as I could see, none of it was particularly important to the plot. All we needed to know really was that this is what they're doing. They need to find the tomb. konshu doesn't want them to find the tomb. The other gods are not getting involved. They find the tomb. That's basically it. So they find the tomb as do Mark stroke Stephen and Layla. And they challenge Harrow in the tomb. And at the very end of episode four, we've gone through two episodes now, the very end of episode four, Mark stroke Stephen is shot, presumably killed, falls backwards into into a, a, a pool. And the last thing we see is Mark and Stephen together in a very anaesthetic very white facility where they meet a giant talking hippo and then that's the end of that it's episode five and six the last two episodes where i think this show really begins to shine brightly because episodes two three and four i enjoyed them And, you know, it was good fun watching, but a bit meh. Fun, fine, but not not reaching the heights that episode one did. By the end of episode four, I was beginning to think, oh, yeah, they've made this a bit ordinary now, haven't they? Well, not quite. Not quite. Because in episode five, things start to get properly weird again. And we start to get some answers about what's going on with Mark and Stephen. At first we have Mark being interviewed by a psychiatrist, a psychiatrist who is Harrow and this white very clinical place is a psychiatric hospital. Now that's not what psychiatric hospitals look like in the UK, It may well be what psychiatric hospitals look like in the US. Uh, Certainly, when I see them on TV, you know, in in TV psychiatric hospitals in America are very white, very clinical places where all the staff wear white. Um, As I say, that's not what a psychiatric hospital looks like in the UK. I am very pleased to say, because I don't think that those conditions will be conducive to positive mental health. But that's a subject for another time. Anyway, and sometimes sometimes this psychiatrist, Harrow, is talking to Stephen. Sometimes he's talking to Mark. And there is a suggestion, just a suggestion, that there might be a third personality in there as well. We hear a different voice that's neither Mark nor Stephen coming from that face. It's brief, but I think perhaps important. We learn, as Mark and Stephen learn together again as two separate people, that this is in fact not a psychiatric hospital, or at least. They don't think it is. It is, in fact, the boat that takes the dead across the sands to the field of reeds, the Egyptian idea of heaven. The boat is piloted by the nice hippo-headed lady that we saw at the end of the previous episode. And she is the goddess Tawaret. I think I pronounced that correctly. And it is her job to ferry the souls of the the dead across the desert to the field of reeds, or if their hearts don't balance against a feather, to throw them overboard into the desert where they will become uh, unbalanced souls forever. Uh, The Egyptian idea of hell. I'm not entirely sure how accurate that is to what ancient Egyptians actually believed, but hey, we'll roll with it, Okay. Now, I want to say a few things about the hippo-headed lady. I'm not going to try and say her name again, just in case I'm getting it wrong. She's easily one of the most fun characters in the show. Not perfect CGI, but she'll do. And I like her because she is unrelentingly cheerful and friendly, whilst being ruthlessly efficient at her job. She has this very jolly tone, um, but she's very clear about what the rules are. So it's like, oh, yes, yes, I'm very nice and I'm very happy. I will, of course, throw you overboard to your eternal damnation if you don't balance against that feather. And she basically tells Mark and Stephen, look, you ain't balancing. And there must be something in your past that is unbalanced. All of your memories are on this boat. Find out what it is before we get where we're going or you're going over the side. Mark's not keen, but Stephen insists and kind of pushes Mark into exploring the memories that he doesn't want to go back to. And... Again, I liked this because Mark Spector has severe and enduring mental ill health, is the way I would put it. And one of the issues that can cause that kind of mental ill health is not being able to face things that have happened to you. And that's exactly what Mark is doing. He's he's not facing things. Stephen is pushing him into it. And that becomes even more symbolic in a minute. I'm going to go into a bit of detail on this one. So we see a memory of Mark and a little brother who has not been mentioned previously as children. And they're going off on a bit of an adventure. They're, they're playing at being the hero of a film that they both really like. And part of this game, they go into a cave system that they've been warned not to go into if it rains, because when it rains, it floods. And it looks like rain. But, you know, Mark's keen to go in. Big brother Mark keen to go in, kind of teases his little brother for being scared. Stephen, who's watching all of this, is screaming at them not to go into the cave. But of course they can't hear him because they're not real. They're a memory. And Mark is constantly trying to pull Stephen away. But they go into the cave and Stephen, Mark's little brother drowns. We then see that this destroys Mark's family. His mother cannot forgive Mark for not looking after his brother properly and becomes quite abusive. And Mark's father, also grieving the loss of a son, but also trying to protect his other son, is kind of stuck in the middle and doesn't really know what to do as Mark becomes more and more distant. And then we see the origin of Stephen. Mark's mother has descended into alcoholism and violence, and she beats Mark fairly regularly, this child. And Stephen Grant is the actor who plays the hero in the movie that Mark and his brother liked so much. And Stephen Grant is a tough guy. He can deal with anything, right? So that's the persona that Mark, young Mark, Creates to deal with the beatings so that he can be safe. And that's actually quite an accurate representation of how dissociative identity disorder can begin. Obviously, this is quite tough for Stephen to take, but Stephen at this point is the balanced one. Stephen is the one who's capable in this environment. And we see more. We then see that Mark's mother has died, something that Stephen initially refuses to accept because he's been talking all the way through this show. Stephen's been talking to his mum on the phone, except, of course, he really hasn't. And We go back to a day in New York when Mark went home, missed his mother's funeral. But he, he, I, I, I don't understand the the Jewish funeral rites properly. I don't know whether, he, must maybe this is before the funeral because he's he's gone to sit shiver, um, but he can't go through with it. He's, he's wearing the, the school cap, and he's 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 on the door. He can't go through with it, and he walks away, and we see his father looking sadly out of the window. Desperate for some connection with his estranged son, but Mark can't do it. And as he walks away, Stephen takes over. This is the point where Stephen takes over kind of permanently. So presumably this is a few weeks or months before episode one. And so Mark falls to the ground in anguish. Stephen stands up. He's confused about where he is. And immediately rings his mum and has the, yeah, can you believe it? I've done it again. Except, of course, he's not talking to anybody. This time, we can see that phone is not ringing out. At this point, things become clear, but the time is out. The unbalanced souls of the dead are storming the ship, but Mark and Stephen team up to battle them off. Stephen is lost. He goes overboard. And at that point, the feather balances, and Mark finds himself alone in the field of reeds. But he's clearly lost the better part of himself. It has been made very clear throughout that episode that Stephen was the good guy here. Uh, you know, Stephen was trying to find a solution to the problem that they both had. Mark was all for um, killing the goddess and stealing her ship. You know, that's... but Mark's not having it. In the end, he fights back, they're reunited, he saves Steven. And there's one last epic battle. Uh, We get to meet the goddess Amet, who is also not the best CGI in the world, but she'll do In the final fight, we get a clear indication that there is another personality inside Mark Spector. A personality that's even more violent and even more dangerous than Stephen himself. And we know that Stephen is violent and dangerous because one of the memories, one of the rooms in the, air quotes, psychiatric hospital was full of the people that Stephen has, uh, that Mark has killed. And Stephen is horrified to see how many bodies there are, just what the body count is. Overall, this was a brilliant show, which I heartily recommend. Yes, there are some problems with it. Some of the writing is a little bit hand-wavy. I'm still not entirely sure why Harrow had a cult village in the middle of wherever that, that was. Switzerland, Austria, wherever it was. I don't quite get that. There's quite a lot that hasn't been explained. Perhaps that could be de- dealt with in a second season, if there's going to be one. It isn't confirmed. And I have to say, if the performances hadn't been so strong, it probably wouldn't have worked. Uh, Ethan Hawke as Harrow, just stand, stand out, just brilliant, brilliant performance. Matched and then exceeded by Oscar Isaacs as Stephen stroke Mark. I always thought Oscar Isaacs was a, a really good actor. I think now that I've seen this, I think he's he's a great actor. Because convincingly, being two different people at the same time, is hard to pull off. I know it's what actors do. Actors are always pretending to be different characters. But it's genuinely hard to pull off. You need to be a really good actor to be able to do that. The only person who I've seen do it better is Tatiana Maslali in um, Dolphin Black, which is a show I'm going to have to get Hat back on to talk about at some point because that's a show I really, really need to do. But overall, if I was giving marks out of 10 it's probably an 8 because it's not perfect but it's fairly close and all of the flaws it's got are things I am more than willing to forgive and because I've been talking about this for 50 odd minutes now you're probably sick of hearing me bang on about Moon Knight just suffice to say it is an excellent show if you have Disney Plus and you haven't checked it out I can recommend you do so. If you haven't got Disney+, Plus, I recommend you make friends with somebody who does and then go around and watch it at their house. It's not the best of the Disney+, Plus Marvel shows. I think that is still, for me, WandaVision. It's not my favourite of the Disney+, Plus Marvel shows. I think that's going to be Hawkeye pretty much forever. But it is... One of the best TV shows I've seen this year. And do you know what? I watch quite a lot of TV. So I guess we should probably move on a little bit, shouldn't we? Because we are 53 and a half minutes into the show. And really all I've talked about is boom Knight. So what else has been happening in the world of Geek? Well, loads, actually. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail about it now because I'm going to do a whole, a whole show about it in a few weeks' time. But... More guests have been announced for Thought Bubble, which is coming up in November. It's looking like it's going to be another epic T-Bubs. So um, head yourselves off to um, ThoughtBubbleFestival.com and check out the latest developments. And keep yourself up to date. Tickets are on sale now. I think I said that last week. Uh, Just go to ThoughtBubbleFestival.com to purchase your tickets. If you are a child and you're going with a uh, a ticket-buying adult, then you can get in for free. And if you are over 65, you can also get in for free. In both cases, you will still need a ticket. It's just that ticket won't cost you anything. Full details over at ThoughtBubbleFestival.com. And while I am talking about things that are coming up in the future, probably now is as good a time as any to do the Geek Community notices. And because people are starting to get in touch with me at info at destinationvenus.co.uk to tell me about things, I actually have three, three things for you to put in your diary. And one of them, if you're listening to this on the day it drops, is tomorrow. So get on it, guys. First up, then, tomorrow, Friday the 13th of May. Our wonderful friends at the Dead Northern Film Festival will be at the North Bar on Cheltenham Parade. Showing Friday the 13th, on Friday the 13th, in 3D. What could be better? Seriously. Uh, Get yourself down that. You do need a ticket. Uh, They're £9, I think. Uh, Links to where you can get tickets in the show notes. Why wouldn't you want to go and do this? It's Friday the 13th. You can watch Friday the 13th with some like-minded Friday the 13th fans in 3D. I've been rather pleased, actually, just by uh, the number of people who I've told about this when they've come into the shop and they've said, yeah, we've already got our tickets. It's nice to know that the uh, the geeky grapevine still works. And on the subject of geekiness and things to go and see, uh, Thursday the 19th of May, so that's next Thursday, if you're listening to this on the day that it drops, It's the Geeky Movie Quiz from the good folks at the Geek Pub Quiz at the Everyman Cinema in Harrogate. Now, now, now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but Thursday night is when we stay in and listen to Geeking with Destination Venus on Harrogate Community Radio. Well, don't worry. Okay, if you listen on HCR, you can still go out on a Thursday night if and only if it's to go to the Geeky Movie Quiz. Because we are repeated on HCR on a Saturday and on a Tuesday. And if those days don't work for you either, well, don't worry. You can always listen in your podcast feed. So don't panic. You can go to the Geeky Movie Quiz and still listen to me ramble on. You're welcome. And on the subject of Geeky Quizzes, if the Geeky Movie Quiz on Thursday the 19th were not enough, Steve and Helen of Geek Pub Quiz fame will also have the original, the one and only, the original and best Geek Pub Quiz on Sunday the 22nd of May. That's a week on Sunday, if you listen to this on the day that it drops. At the Major Tom's Social, back in its rightful home. Both quizzes start at 7.30pm. I would advise you to get there for 7-ish so that you can find a comfortable seat with your team and all that kind of stuff. Make sure you've been at the bar and got an appropriate beverage. There is a small entrance fee to take part in the quiz, but the prizes are amazing, and I know that because we donate some of them. But Steve and Helen are brilliant at coming up with excellent, excellent prizes uh, for the winners and the runners-up, and the team that comes second to last. Not last, but second to last. A sort of Constellation prize that never ever fails to amuse okay we are nearly out of time just enough time i think to bring in our astronomy section and tell you what there is to see in the night sky right now and as has been the case for quite a long time now it's getting a little bit sickening not very much is happening in the night sky uh you can still if you get up early in the morning uh, witness. A really very pleasing lineup of planets. Uh, You can see Venus, brightest object in the sky. You can see the yellowish Saturn. You can see Jupiter, which is also quite bright at the moment. Um, And you can see the sort of reddish Mars. Through a telescope or a decent pair of binoculars, they look amazing. You are going to struggle to see them if you're in a built-up area. They're very low on the horizon, but it's worth making the effort. Even I, finally, have got up early to just catch a glimpse of this. If you prefer not to get up so early in the morning, there are some good chances to see the International Space Station over the next week if you're in the UK. Uh, I don't have time to give you all the timings, but you've got several opportunities across the next several days and well into next week where the ISS will be visible for several minutes at a time. And it's always nice to see full details of all of that in the show notes, which I promise you are there this week. Okay, that really is all we've got time for. We'll see you next week for more of this geeky goodness. Until then, be kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else. Till the next time, we go geeking.